This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sexuality, and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. When the Moxley family moved to the insular and wealthy neighborhood of Bell Haven in Greenwich, Connecticut, they never could have imagined the depth of tragedy they'd experienced there. On October 30th, 1975, or what locals called Mischief Night, their popular and fun-loving 15-year-old daughter, Martha, was brutally attacked just yards from their front door. Investigators believed the killer attacked Martha from behind with a golf club. He then dragged her away from the street and attempted to sexually assault her. When she fought back, he killed her with multiple blows to the head. For over 20 years, the grief of losing Martha was compounded by the lack of justice. Investigators suspected that the Moxley's 17-year-old neighbor, Tommy Skakel, or his 23-year-old live-in tutor, Ken Littleton, was responsible for the murder. But the evidence didn't directly point at either of them. In the wake of clear answers, the media and public opinion shifted blame around the cast of characters living at the Skakel home. Then, 24 years after the murder, Tommy's younger brother, Michael Skakel, was arrested for the crime. The case was now out of the hands of the police and the media. It was time for a jury to decide. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Today we're continuing our discussion of the Martha Moxley murder case. Last week, we followed the 1975 police investigation of her death. At the time, it was widely speculated that Tommy Skakel was responsible, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. In 2000, new evidence emerged, but instead of confirming Tommy's guilt, it pointed to the younger Skakel son, Michael. This week, we'll examine now 41-year-old Michael Skakel's criminal trial. We'll see how the evidence against him was presented to the jury and the aftermath of the verdict. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. When Martha Moxley's mother, Dorothy, entered the courthouse on May 7, 2002, she was all smiles. The 70-year-old turned to the cameras and flashed a thumbs up to the waiting media. Finally, she might find justice for her Martha. Her son John at her side, Dorothy walked into the courtroom. She was greeted by Martha's face. The state's prosecuting attorney, Jonathan Benedict, projected a picture of Martha onto the courtroom wall, just as she appeared 27 years ago. In this photograph, 15-year-old Martha clutched notebooks in the crook of her arm, beaming. She looked straight into the camera. The photograph reminded everyone why they were there. The bright, innocent girl they saw had been heinously murdered. Prosecutor Benedict used his opening statement to address the delay in justice. He laid the blame at the feet of the Skakel family, claiming they actively covered up Michael's involvement in Martha's murder so many years ago. He then promised the jury they would hear the truth from Michael's former classmates at Elan, a residential school for adolescents with behavioral disorders. All of them would testify that when he was 17, Michael confessed to killing Martha. Benedict assured the jury that there was more than enough evidence to find Michael Skakel guilty. When defense attorney Mickey Sherman addressed the jury, he called the state's case a house of cards, built mostly with wild cards and a few jokers, biting words for the former Elan classmates who would testify. Sherman accused these witnesses of seeking attention from the famous case, unearthing the words of a teenager 20 years after the fact. Sherman then looked at each juror in turn. He asked them not to be swayed by the horrific images of Martha's body and the sympathy they felt for her and her family. Their deliberations had to be about the evidence alone, and Sherman argued the state had none because Michael Skakel was not guilty. The first witness to take the stand for the state was 70-year-old Dorothy Moxley. She testified about her panic on the night of October 30, 1975, when Martha didn't come home on time. Dorothy's gentle confidence was apparent as she testified about the night Martha went missing. She told the jury that she was like a zombie in the wake of Martha's death, unable to function. Before she left the stand, Benedict handed her a small book to identify. She lovingly ran her hand over the cover. It was Martha's diary. Then before the next witness, the entire Moxley family stood up and left the courtroom. Prosecutor Benedict had warned them about what was about to happen. Photographs from the crime scene were blown up and projected onto the wall. The Moxleys were not about to relive their nightmare in the courtroom. The state then called Sheila McGuire to testify. Sheila was just 15 years old when she found her friend's body under a tree in the yard. As Sheila described how she found Martha, a photo of the crime scene was projected onto the wall. 
the jury saw what Sheila had seen all those years ago, Martha's hair soaked with blood, her jeans and underpants violently tugged down to her ankles. They saw how close Martha was to her front door, how close she was to safety. On cross-examination, defense attorney Mickey Sherman also focused on the distance between where Martha was found and her front door. Trying to test the reliability of Sheila's memory, he asked her to estimate how many feet were between Martha and the house. But Sheila didn't know. So Sherman asked her how long it took to run from the body to the house. Sheila answered, Mr. Sherman, it took a lifetime. As Prosecutor Benedict continued to present his case, he tried as many ways as possible to make this decades-old murder real and immediate to the jury. He called the state's medical examiner to testify about Martha's injuries. To accompany his statements, Benedict projected close-up photos of her wounds as well as images from her autopsy. While the crime scene photos were graphic, these were much worse. He argued they were more likely to inflame the jurors than educate them on the circumstances of the crime. But Benedict insisted the jury needed to see these photos. He wanted them to understand the brutality of this murder and the absolute rage taken out on Martha. As the jury passed along the photographs, Benedict saw that he succeeded. They were shaken. One juror put her head into her hands, while another clenched her hands tightly together. A few others looked over at Michael Skakel. Michael, however, looked straight ahead at the witness box, seemingly absorbed in the medical examiner's testimony. Next on the stand was one of Martha's best friends, Jackie Wettenhall. Jackie told the court that she used to hang out with Martha at the Skakel house and that they were largely unsupervised there. She sheepishly smiled as she admitted that, when they were just 15 years old, Michael Skakel had a bit of a crush on her. Benedict then handed Jackie the small book Dorothy Moxley had identified, Martha's Diary. He theorized that Michael's motive was jealousy. He was angry that his brother Tommy got the attention of Martha, who Michael also liked. To demonstrate this, Benedict asked Jackie to read portions out of the diary. Just six weeks before her death, Martha wrote about Tommy flirting with her. About Michael, she wrote, He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on when I don't like him, except as a friend. I said, well, how about you and Jackie? You keep telling me that you don't like her and you're all over her. He doesn't understand that he can be nice to her without hanging all over her. Michael jumps to conclusions. I can't be friends with Tom. Just because I talk to him doesn't mean I like him. I really have to stop going over there. The state next called Captain Thomas Keegan, the lead investigator on the case in 1975. He testified about the course of the investigation and told the jury that the Skakels were immediately of interest in the case. Defense attorney Mickey Sherman was quick to jump on Keegan's use of Skakels, plural. In fact, for the entirety of the 1975 investigation, only one Skakel was looked at seriously as a suspect, and it wasn't Michael Skakel, but his brother, Tommy. 
Keegan admitted that in the fall of 1975, they were looking specifically at then 17-year-old Tommy Skakel. He said he sought an arrest warrant for him in the summer of 1976. However, they didn't have enough evidence to move forward. That was lucky, Keegan added. They were clearly focused on the wrong brother. But Sherman again tried to cast doubts. Who's to say they were looking at the right brother now if they'd gotten it wrong then? But Benedict had anticipated this tactic, and he would put Sherman's questions to rest with his next witness. Andrea Shakespeare was a friend of Julie Skakel, Michael's older sister. She was at the Skakel home on the night of the murder, October 30th, 1975. For 26 years, Michael claimed that he couldn't have possibly killed Martha because he was 20 minutes away at his cousin's house at the time of the attack. But now, in 2002, Andrea told the court a different story. She'd watched the eldest Skakel boys get in the family car and leave for their cousin's house, but Michael wasn't with them. She was certain he'd stayed behind. This differed from the statement Andrea gave to independent investigators in 1991. On cross-examination, Sherman reminded Andrea that she said it was just her impression that Michael didn't leave the house, but she wasn't sure. However, Andrea stood fast on the stand that her memory in 2002 was clear. Michael did not leave the house. Unfortunately for Prosecutor Benedict, his next witness contradicted Andrea. Helen Ix, one of Martha's friends, was also at the Skakel home on the night of October 30th. Helen testified that she last saw Martha with Tommy Skakel at 9.30 p.m. The two were flirting and it made her uncomfortable, so Helen left to go home. When Benedict asked Helen if she saw Michael that night, she remembered Michael was with them at the Skakel home until his brothers left for their cousin's house. While she couldn't be absolutely sure, she believed Michael had left with them. She couldn't remember seeing him after that, at least. It was a windfall for Sherman. Establishing that Michael had a solid alibi was one part of his two-pronged defense. The second part was to show that there was another viable suspect, and that man was about to take the stand. Coming up, we hear from one of the early suspects in the case. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In May of 2002, 41-year-old Michael Skakel stood trial for the 1975 murder of 15-year-old Martha Moxley. His attorney, Mickey Sherman, wanted to throw suspicion on another viable suspect. Lucky for him, investigators had previously suspected Michael's live-in tutor, Ken Littleton, of committing the heinous act. Ken, now 50 years old, took the stand as a witness for the prosecution. 
He insisted that he never met or even saw Martha Moxley. He had just moved into the Skakel home that day and spent the night of October 30th in his room, watching The French Connection. Around 10 p.m., Michael's older brother, Tommy, joined him for part of the movie. Aside from briefly checking on a noise the Skakel nanny heard outside, he was in his room all night. This was important testimony for prosecutor John Benedict because it provided an alibi for both Ken Littleton and the other early suspect in the case, Tommy. It only bolstered his assertion that the wrong Skakel brother was under suspicion in 1975. Ken also testified that the day after Martha was found, Rushton Skakel, the boy's father, told him to take Tommy and Michael to the family's New York vacation home. While Rushton insisted for years that he wanted to get his children away from the trauma of the murder, state attorney Jonathan Benedict believed the sudden trip was the start of the Skakel's cover-up. It was a chance for the brothers to get their stories straight. But on Sherman's cross-examination, Ken conceded that he did not hear the boys talk about Martha's murder at all the entire trip. He could provide no evidence any cover-up happened. Sherman then confronted Ken with statements from his ex-wife. She alleged that Ken confessed to her that he was involved in Martha's murder. Sherman asked Ken point blank if he ever admitted to his ex-wife that he killed Martha. But he denied this on the stand. He told the jury he did not murder Martha. Finally, a week and a half into proceedings, the witnesses Benedict had promised in his opening statement were paraded through. Seven classmates from the Elan School were called to the stand. They all testified that they heard Michael Skakel either directly confess to killing Martha or at least admit it was a possibility. Two of these classmates provided the most detailed testimony of Michael's confession, John Higgins and Gregory Coleman. John Higgins told the jurors about sitting on the porch one night with Michael at Elon. Michael began slowly telling John about a party held at his house one night. He said he was drunk and could only remember the night in flashes. He cried as he told John about taking a golf club out of the garage. Then he remembered looking up and seeing pine trees. He ran through the woods and then nothing. He blacked out. The next thing he remembered was waking up in his own bed. John recalled that Michael initially said he didn't know if he killed Martha, but eventually Michael broke down and allegedly said to John, I did it. The next star witness, Gregory Coleman, could not actually take the stand. Nine months before the trial, 39-year-old Gregory died of a heroin overdose but he had already testified in a pretrial hearing in April of 2001, so Benedict read his testimony for the jury. Mickey Sherman vehemently objected to this. He couldn't cross-examine a transcript, but the state argued that Sherman had also questioned Gregory at the pretrial hearing, so any objections he had to the statements would already be on the record. Judge Kavanuski decided to allow the full transcript. According to Gregory's account, Michael attempted to run away from Elan in November of 1978, three years after the murder. When he was brought back to the school, 
Michael was sent to his room. Gregory was left there to guard him. Gregory noticed that Michael still had all his usual amenities in his room in spite of being punished, like his record player. He confronted Michael about this, saying it seemed like he could get away with murder. Michael allegedly said, I am going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. When Gregory asked him what he meant by that, Michael admitted that he already beat a girl to death after she turned down his sexual advances. He hit her so hard with a golf club that it broke in half. Two days after the murder, he boasted that he returned to the body and masturbated on it. In the transcript, Sherman had jumped on this last point in his cross-examination. Martha was found the very next day, and two days after the murder, Michael was in New York. This portion of the story could not possibly be true. Gregory admitted to Sherman his memory was questionable. He spent his entire adult life addicted to drugs and confessed that he had done heroin just an hour before the pretrial hearing. After the transcript was read at the current trial, Mickey Sherman was frustrated. It had been a year since he cross-examined Gregory at the hearing, and he had more questions. But since Gregory wasn't there to testify, Sherman had to settle for what was in the record. Finally, Benedict called another witness from Milan, Alice Dunn. But she wasn't a fellow student. She was a former staff member. Alice was vague with the details, but testified that she heard Michael say on a few occasions that he may have killed Martha. However, he didn't remember actually doing it. Mickey Sherman knew there was a reason Alice was vague about the source of Michael's confession. On cross-examination, he asked her to elaborate. Alice explained that Elan was a school for troubled youth, and after Michael tried to run away, he was punished. For three full days, he alternated between standing for an hour and sitting for an hour. There were no breaks to sleep, and by the end, he was completely exhausted. After this initial punishment, a group meeting was called. The school director told the gathered students that Michael had killed his neighbor. Then he ordered Michael to confess. When Michael refused, he was put into a boxing ring. The students took turns taunting him. Every time he denied killing Martha, he was punched. Finally, Michael gave in. He stopped denying killing Martha. Instead, he started saying he couldn't remember that night. With this, the abuse stopped. Afterward, he was forced to wear a sign that said, confront me on why I murdered Martha Moxley. Before he was allowed to eat, Michael had to read the sign aloud to the cafeteria at every meal. The Innocence Project has identified multiple factors that lead to coerced false confessions. While they typically focus on the actions of police, some of these identified factors applied to the tactics used at the Elan School. Use of force, denial of food and sleep, and intimidation all played a role in the events Alice Dunn described. Mickey Sherman wanted the jury to hear that Michael's confessions were not freely given in a boastful way, like Gregory Coleman alleged, and they weren't given freely and tearfully, as John Higgins claimed. Rather, they were given under extreme physical and social pressure. 
He hoped that this takedown of Michael's supposed confessions would give him momentum as he presented his own side of the case. For his first witness, Mickey Sherman called Michael's cousin, Jimmy Tarion, to firmly establish his client's alibi. Jimmy testified that Michael was at his house until about 11 p.m. Next, Michael's older brother, Rushton Jr., backed this statement up. But on cross-examination, both men were foggy about details. They couldn't remember which car they drove or who had been drinking that night. It seemed the only thing they remembered perfectly was that Michael was not at home until after Martha was murdered. So Sherman tried to capitalize on this clear recollection. He called Dr. Joseph A. Yahimchek to the stand. He was a medical examiner who Greenwich police consulted with in 1975. Based on stomach contents, digestion, and rigor mortis, he set the time of death at 10 p.m. However, on cross-examination, Jonathan Benedict pressed this point. Dr. Yahimchek was forced to admit that Martha could have been killed as late as 1 a.m. based solely on the forensic evidence, which was hours after Michael supposedly returned home. But Mickey Sherman recovered with his next witness, Sarah Peterson, another Elan school classmate. He used her testimony to drive home the point that Michael's so-called confession had been coerced. Sarah testified that false admissions were frequent at Elan due to the abuse. She herself admitted to being a whore and a slut in spite of being a virgin. She said she was being berated and knew if she admitted to it, the verbal abuse would stop. 41-year-old Michael Skakel wanted to take the stand in his own defense. After weeks of hearing everyone else speculate about where he was on the night of the murder, he wanted the chance to tell his side of the story. However, Mickey Sherman thought that was a bad idea. Sherman wasn't sure Michael's temper would hold up under cross-examination. The last thing he wanted the jury to see was Michael getting rattled. Michael listened to his attorney's advice, and the defense rested. On June 3, 2002, the jury heard from both sides one last time through their closing arguments. Prosecutor Benedict told jurors that the golf club and the missing handle may not be a smoking gun, but it was certainly a very warm barrel. He reiterated that there was a cover-up on the part of the Skakel family. The prosecutor then gave an audio-visual presentation. He once again projected photos from the crime scene onto the wall. Then, over the slideshow, Benedict played tapes of Michael Skakel speaking with the ghostwriter of his autobiography, Richard Hoffman. As the tape played, select words appeared on the screen over the crime scene photos. When Michael said, Oh my God, did they see me last night? I remember just having a feeling of panic. A picture of Martha's battered body was shown. In the context of the full tape, this came after Michael confessed to climbing a tree and masturbating. He was worried Dorothy Moxley had seen him, but superimposed over the crime scene photo, it sounded more like a murder confession. Defense attorney Mickey Sherman did not bring the same type of presentation to the jurors. 
he simply addressed the state's case and their lack of concrete evidence. He told the jury that the investigators played musical chairs with suspects for 27 years. Sherman implored the jury to find his client not guilty. Reporters described his final plea, in comparison to the state's, as lackluster. The case was then put into the hands of the 12 jurors. Deliberations lasted for three days before the jury foreman sent word they had reached a verdict. Coming up, the jury delivers their verdict. Now back to the story. On June 7, 2002, the 12 jurors of the Martha Moxley murder trial filed back into the courtroom with their verdict. 41-year-old Michael Skakel stood, frozen, as the foreperson announced their decision. They found him guilty. 70-year-old Dorothy Moxley sat stunned for a moment and then leaned on her son John and cried. Judge Kavanuski asked the lawyers if they had anything to say. Michael Skakel called out, I'd like to say something. But the judge didn't allow him to speak. He had the chance to testify during the trial and opted not to. And with that, the jury was dismissed. Michael, who had been free on bond during the proceedings, was taken into custody. Outside the courthouse, Dorothy Moxley told waiting reporters that this is Martha's day. Then, in the next breath, she expressed sympathy for the Skakel family. This was a difficult day for them. Nearly three months after the verdict, the Skakels and Moxleys once again found themselves sitting on opposite sides of the aisle for Michael's sentencing. Given a chance to address the court, Michael cried as he professed his innocence and spoke of his three-year-old son who he now wouldn't get to raise. He said he prayed for the prosecution, judge, media, and the Moxleys daily. Looking at the Moxleys, he said he wished he could tell them that he did this so that they could have a resolution, but that it was a lie. He was innocent. Michael's attorney asked for leniency and the minimum sentence of 10 years. Character witnesses spoke of how Michael had spent the last 20 years of sobriety helping others overcome their addictions. Even the Department of Probation's pre-sentence report spoke to this, saying that Michael was not the same person he was at 15, and he did not pose a risk to the community. Regardless, Prosecutor Benedict asked for the maximum of 25 years to life. He said that Michael's intervention with those struggling with addiction likely saved their lives, but that his intervention into Martha's life ended hers. On August 29, 2002, Judge Kavanuski sentenced Michael with 20 years to life. He said that Michael's lack of remorse and refusal to take responsibility warranted a heavier sentence, even after taking into account his age at the time of the crime. Michael's attorneys pledged to appeal, which they did on November 24, 2003. They pointed out all the errors that occurred during the trial. Generally speaking, a defendant only gets one shot at appeal, so they must bring up every potential error, no matter how small. 
One of the main issues raised was the use of Michael's confessions made at the Elan school. Michael's attorney, Mickey Sherman, had argued that Michael's statements at the school were only given as a result of the abuse he was subjected to. They amounted to coerced confessions, which were not admissible in court. They also argued that Gregory Coleman's testimony being read to the jury wasn't appropriate because Sherman couldn't cross-examine him with new information. They also pointed out a piece of evidence that was never turned over to the defense, a composite sketch of a man seen in the area the night of the murder. The man was clearly not Michael Skakel, and any evidence that shows the defendant may not have committed the crime must be turned over. This sketch, they argued, looked a lot like Ken Littleton. Another argument was made that the state's closing statement should not have been allowed. By using out-of-context clips of Michael played over the crime scene photographs, the state gave the jury the impression Michael had confessed to murder, when in fact, all he admitted to was masturbating in a tree. They presented all of these problems to the Connecticut Supreme Court over years of hearings, but on January 13, 2006, three and a half years after the original ruling, the court upheld the conviction. But during this appeals process, another lead came forward. Michael's cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., wrote an article arguing Michael's innocence in 2003. Afterward, he received a tip that someone named Tony Bryant had undisclosed information on Martha's murder. Tony, the cousin of basketball star Kobe Bryant, lived in Greenwich in 1975 and attended school with Michael Skakel. Tony allegedly told Kennedy that on Mischief Night of 1975, the night Martha was killed, two of his friends from the Bronx visited him in Greenwich. While they were walking through the neighborhood, one of the friends picked up a golf club from the Skakel yard. He said he wanted to attack a girl caveman style. Tony, not wanting to be a part of what they were planning, left. When he heard about Martha's murder, he put two and two together. His friends later confessed to him, but he didn't come forward out of fear. With this new evidence, Michael's appellate team filed a separate motion for a new trial. To get a new trial based on this new evidence, the team had to prove that these suspects would have significantly impacted the verdict. However, the judge ruled that this story lacked credibility. He found it highly unlikely that three black teenagers were roaming around the predominantly white Bellhaven neighborhood without being noticed by anyone. This motion was denied in April of 2010. Though defeated yet again, Michael and his attorneys were not finished. Six months later, in September, the appellate team filed yet another motion for a new trial. Eight years after the proceedings, Michael claimed his trial attorney, Mickey Sherman, was ineffective. To prove ineffective assistance of counsel, Michael's current attorneys had to show three things. First, they had to show that Sherman did not do things a reasonably skilled attorney would have done. Second, if Sherman had done these things, the outcome of Michael's trial likely would have been different. And lastly, 
they had to convince the court that any of Sherman's missteps were actual mistakes and not a defense strategy. Their main claim was that an alibi witness, not related to Michael Skakel, could put him 20 minutes from the Moxley property at the time of the murder. Michael claimed in 1975, and again at his 2002 trial, that he was at his cousin Jimmy Terrian's house on the night of the murder. His brothers and cousin backed this up, but the prosecution painted their alibi testimony as signs of a family cover-up. But there were actually two other people at Jimmy's house that night, Jimmy's sister, George Ann, and her boyfriend at the time, Dennis Osorio. But Mickey Sherman never questioned the latter. Michael's appellate attorneys noticed this lapse and tracked Dennis down. Dennis told them that he was not only at the home that night, but he actually saw Michael there. Though he spent most of his night with Georgianne, he watched TV with the teens while Georgianne put her daughter to bed. Had he been asked, he would have testified to this at Michael's trial. But the state countered that choosing to use an alibi witness or not was a defense strategy and therefore could not be considered grounds for ineffective counsel. In fact, Michael had the best defense money could buy, and there was no reason to think Mickey Sherman missed a credible alibi witness. In addition, Michael's new lawyer stated that Sherman did not present a viable alternative suspect in an effective manner to the jury. They meant Ken Littleton, the live-in tutor. However, when appellate judge Thomas A. Bishop gave his ruling, he scolded that Sherman had overlooked the most likely alternative suspect of all, Tommy Skakel. He said that if Tommy had been presented as a viable suspect, the jury likely would have found reasonable doubt. Because of this, Michael Skakel's conviction was thrown out and he was granted a new trial. A judge granted him bail in the amount of $1.2 million. Thanks to the wealth of his family, he was a free man after 11 years in jail for a crime he claimed he didn't commit. But in December of 2016, it seemed this freedom would be short-lived. The Connecticut State Supreme Court reversed the lower court's decision, four to three, and reinstated Michael's conviction. They ruled that Mickey Sherman's defense was sufficient. Michael's attorneys asked that the court reconsider, and they agreed. The court, however, rarely reverses itself. But fate intervened. One of the justices who ruled against Michael retired, and a new judge took his place. When the new court made its final decision in May of 2018, the vote flipped. It was four to three in favor of Michael Skakel. The state appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, they decided in January of 2019 not to hear the appeal. Michael's order for a new trial still stands at the time of this recording. The state is now left with a few options. They can drop the charges, essentially leaving Martha's case legally unresolved, they could also offer Michael a plea deal. Usually, plea deals like this would mean Michael's sentence would equal the time he has already spent in prison. He would be a convicted murderer, but he would be free. Or, now 44 years after the murder, the state could retry Michael. 
As of June 2019, no announcement has been made of the state's intentions. Dorothy Moxley, now 86, told the Boston Herald that she supports the state in whatever they decide. Michael's original defense attorney, Mickey Sherman, issued a prepared statement in 2016 in response to the insufficient counsel claims. He said, part of my job is to allow the appellate lawyers to throw me under the bus. I have never whined about any negative comments about me in that all that is important is the release of Michael Skakel from being incarcerated for a crime of which I sincerely believe he is not guilty. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new case to explore. Now that you've heard the evidence, decide for yourself. Was Michael Skakel the innocent scapegoat in a 20-year-old murder case? Or did he escape justice through his family's wealth and connections? You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, and Maggie Admire. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.